Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Ellie Graydon, who is a trailblazing data scientist and innovative leader. She's currently serving as a partner and chief data scientist at Luminos Law, or I believe that begins next month, um, as well as a research professor at Georgetown University. Um, she has over 18 years of experience. She's made significant contributions to data strategy, system designs, and also public health through her work with organizations like the CDC, FEMA, and also the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She has, um, she's a she's really renowned for her expertise in utilizing data visualization and computational modeling to inform policy decisions um, and enhancing global health security. We're super excited. Welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jaden. Happy to be here. Okay, so I want to just get right into this. Um, for those that are listening, you have to know I literally sent her an email in September last year trying to get her on the show. Um, we've been going back and forth for a while, and she's obviously super busy, but I'm super, super happy that we we got you on. What I would love to kick this off with is asking if you can share a little bit about your journey, what led you to become a chief data scientist at Luminos Law and a professor at Georgetown. Give us a little bit of your background. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, happy to. So I came at this actually as a scientist. I have a PhD in biology from MIT. And what I really care about, though, is getting data used. I had finished my doctorate in the years when biology really became a data field. We were just finishing the uh, human genome sequencing project, and all of a sudden you went from dealing with an N of six to dealing with Ns in the millions. And it fundamentally changed the field. But I saw a lot of those data not getting used. So I moved down to DC and started working at the policy interface, trying to figure out how to make data useful for policymakers, but for decision makers writ large. So I've, they then launched my own company where we designed and built a whole lot of these systems. So figuring out what the data are, what the modeling is that is coming out of scientific communities, but figuring out how it needs to get used in a policy and governance environment for practical operational activities. So what actually needs to get done in the world. And that's really where my interest in data governance uh, evolved because we need data sharing as much as we need good data protection. And that's a dance. It's both a policy dance, but it's also good engineering practice. So my position at Georgetown has really been zooming in and, and focusing on those more academic or those issues on a more academic side. And now at the law firm, I'll actually be getting to put them back into implementation where you know, all of a sudden we're in this world where there's a huge amount of data governance and policy being written. It's already been written, right? We're seeing copyright and libel laws. This isn't all new. It's not just based on the new AI legislation coming out of the EU. But we somehow need to be building engineering systems in ways that address those requirements and that meet the needs of the people using the products. So that's really where I'll be sitting. So, so fascinating. Um, super interesting background, and I'm excited for you know what you're going to be moving into as well. One question I have after kind of looking over a lot of a lot of what you've done, um, I've been super fascinated and I'm wondering, you know, how do you integrate your background in developmental cell biology with your work in data strategy and systems design? These feel like completely different things to me. I mean, I am no expert, but I'm just like so curious. Fair question. 
So I think of all of these as messy, complex systems. So what I always liked about biology is that, and, and there are a lot of biologists in, in my field who spent their entire career looking at a single protein or a single folding interaction. I wasn't that person. I was the person who went from genetics to protein, uh, protein and biochemical interactions, all the way up to self-shape change, all the way up to how do you actually build the brain over the course of time. And it's those sorts of large-scale systems integration problems that I've always been really interested in. They're complicated and, like I said, they're messy. So I always liked biology because you have to pull the data up and derive an understanding of the system from what already exists in the world, as opposed to systems engineers who, say, build an airplane, and you define every piece of spec from the top down, and then it's a matter of just simply meeting that spec. Biology is a messy system. I like that. Okay. Super, super fascinating. Um, the other thing I would love to ask you about is, you know, what kind of inspired you to focus on data visualization and computational modeling? Um, and then maybe like, especially in the context of policy and governance decisions, I know you've kind of worked there. Yeah, absolutely. So I deeply believe in the power of data. I really am that nerd. And I, I think people make better decisions when they are given information in ways that are directly relevant to them. And that's actually about who that person is. It's about the decision they're trying to make. And I did a lot of work in emergency management where you're talking about people who need to make life and death, death decisions on the basis of huge amounts of computational modeling and quantitative data, but they're making those decisions in the course of five minutes. And you either give okay. them data that are relevant to them and meaningful, or they're going to make that decision on the basis of whatever they have in front of them. And that was really where I got into data visualization because it was a way to do that communication of highly complex data and outputs of computational modeling. And the National Hurricane Center models are still written in Fortran, right? So this is, you know, we're talking, yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about those models needing to get integrated into an Excel spreadsheet run by the Army Corps of Engineers that's calculating things like how many pallets of water need to get loaded on a C-17 in a distribution center in Texas. And so you have these funny translation problems, and they're all large-scale data integration problems at practice, but they're about a person who has a decision to make at the end of the day. And that's really where I've always sat, is figuring out how you do that translation effectively. So some of that is about, well, what data can you use in which contexts? The governance is incredibly important, and you can only use certain, certain types of data in certain contexts. You need to be good stewards of it because these are also, it's, it's fundamentally data about people and about their experience in the world. But then you need to be able to use that information very, very rapidly. And so it's been a lot of analysis of all of those data and modeling systems and understanding how people make decisions on the basis of it. So I was actually just in Rome last week at the G7 as a delegate to the Global Partnership meeting, working on biosecurity issues and talking about how AI is going to transform the biosecurity space and the threat domain. Those same types of, that same type of thinking and that same sort of systems analysis applies in all of those different contexts. That's amazing. Um, so I'm wondering, right, so we have a lot of these exciting things you're working on and you've, you know, expressed a, a bunch of different, you know, uh, challenges that, that we were facing and that you, you've helped to solve. I'm wondering if you can discuss maybe a specific project. Um, I know, I, I don't know if you're, you, I'm assuming you're starting at Luminos Law soon, or have you been working there already for a little while? We're in the midst of the transition. 
Okay. So we must got a trend there. Okay, so it's probably more Georgetown than where this question would land, but I wonder if you can discuss maybe a specific project at Georgetown where AI or machine learning, you know, significantly impacted the outcome of something you're studying or working on. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of really fun examples. So one is that we're building a large-scale knowledge graph and graph database to integrate data that looks at everything from uh, spillover risk from zoonotic disease, so thinking about which animals, wildlife populations, get sick when they get sick and really can identify where they are, right? It turns out we don't do a lot of uh, good public health on wildlife populations. So okay. uh, one of one of the, so this is actually dovetails with another project that we did where we actually just launched a big platform called Pharos, which is designed to actually upload and allow researchers to upload line listing data for wildlife disease. So if there's a researcher at Sao Paulo who heads out into a bat cave and takes a swab, they have someplace to put that information immediately and then get academic credit for it. But those types of data then feed into this large-scale graph database that we've built that is actually then mapping out and that it's designed to link those types of data and modeling to human epidemiological modeling, pull in data on the immune characteristics of those people. What is their risk characteristic? Do they have HIV? Have they been vaccinated? Right, both are, both sides of that. And then we're working with researchers at uh, at Newark who are running a survey that's asking about vaccine hesitancy, that then becomes a parameter for uh, immune characteristics in this population. So then you're looking at end-to-end global scale risk that each one of those individual models are, they're all machine learning models, but they all need to integrate into a large-scale meta model. So that's the work that we're doing is figuring out how you put all of those pieces together. Uh, in another uh, quick example, we're working with LAPD to develop a model of interaction patterns between police and civilians to better understand what good communication and effective communication in policing looks like. And that's working with body-worn video data that we're getting from the department and running uh, interaction models that look at both the video and the and the uh, verbal communications between the officer and the civilian to evaluate what types of outcomes you get when you have more and less effective communication and even what effective communication does in fact mean in that sort of context. So two very disparate examples, but both large-scale data integration problems across a lot of different fields where you're using really complex data and modeling to answer these sorts of integrative questions. Okay, both of those are so fascinating to me. I want to I dive into the um, health one, but I, just like out of curiosity, you know, you mentioned the, the study that you're doing with police. Is that ongoing or do you have any like takeaways? Like what is uh, considered, you know, good communication between pe- uh, you know, police and civilians? Did you have any like interesting takeaways from that one in particular? Uh, yeah, great question. So we're very early in that process. We're just getting access to the body worn video right now. So unfortunately, you're going to have to wait on the take-home messages there. I'm not sure yet. We haven't. We're not sure. We'll we'll figure it out. I'm excited to see what comes out of that because that sounds super fascinating. Um, One thing I'd love to ask about is, you know, like kind of looking at your work with the CDC and FEMA, I'm wondering, like, how do you see AI evolving in the field of emergency management and like public health? Yeah, great question. I think the two big places that I see a lot of room for better integration of AI systems and and modeling systems in general. One is using federated learning and methods to aggregate from what are really antiquated data systems 
scattered across jurisdictions all across the U.S., whether we're talking about county public health departments and or the hospitals that they're working very closely with, those are really tough jurisdictional problems because you're talking about public systems and private systems that need to integrate. People need to be making joint decisions on the basis of that information. And very often those databases weren't designed for supporting the type of real decision, real-time decision-making that we need to be making during emergency management. So a great example during COVID, I was working with Nevada State a lot, and all of their vaccine data uh, were de originally designed to evaluate whether kindergartners had the vaccines they needed to enter, enter school, right? And mm -hmm. the challenge is, though, that meant that it was stored in a 2003 SQL database that was keyed on the individual. What that means in practice is that you can't access, get access to those data without getting all of the individual data or all of the identifiers with it. So mm -hmm. I think actually a lot of the big steps forward won't be at the cutting edge of AI as much as they are in getting really good about tracking data provenance and data lineage through these systems, uh, implementing privacy intensive technologies that are then focused on the outcomes that need to be driven in the world. I think we do a lot of thinking about whether these data or those data are HIPAA, uh, need or require HIPAA compliance or COPPA compliance or FERPA compliance if we're talking about education type data. And we focus a lot on the individual data sets or the individual models. And I think in practice, what we're really going to be moving toward, and we're starting to see this in the governance space, is how do we think about how those models are being used? How do we think about the outcomes and the impacts? And so when we think about it from that perspective, and we think about those outcomes, we need patient level data, and we do need population data level data, and we need facilities level data. Who has power? Do they have the, you know, quite literally, do you have power to the hospital and do you need to evacuate those patients? Right there, there's a, There are a lot of data integration problems there that can be addressed by a lot of these new methods that large-scale analysis driven by AI models, for example, can be really powerful in meeting those requirements while retaining both the proprietary and the privacy components in the data that are feeding into the system. Okay. So, so interesting. Um, looking at that, looking at everything you've done, you kind of mentioned and talked to this a little bit about a little bit of at this at the beginning. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, with your experience in uh, launching startups, you, you mentioned you'd done one. I'm wondering what are some of the challenges, if this if this is applicable, um, that you might have faced in integrating AI technologies into that, and how did you overcome them? Assuming that you you know that was an element of what you were doing at the time. What we've been doing is integrating data and modeling systems for for over a decade. Those systems are not AI per se, or we certainly didn't call them that at the time, but it's all just evolution of the same models at scale. The biggest challenges are, in, I, I really find the biggest challenges to be at the data level, really deeply understanding what your data are, where they come from, what training data you're using, whether you believe those data and modeling systems, uh, and understanding and, and communicating to others the degree to which these are iterative processes. It's not just a single model. These are nested models. You run one set of models, you run one set of analysis that generates a series of outputs. You need to then track those through the system and through then subsequent levels of modeling that yield a broad range of outcomes. And again, I think this is where we get back to really thinking about 
what that use case is. I think the biggest challenge, whether you're in startups or in any other product product system, is defining what the requirements are first and then deciding what the right modeling or analytical tools are to meet it and what data are the, is the minimum set that you need to yield those outcomes. The tendency tends to be, well, I either really want this big fancy tool that I want to be able to say I'm using an AI model. I guess we'll figure out what we're going to do with it and what the product is after the fact. Uh, in which case, in which case, in a lot of cases now, all of a sudden we're discovering that we trained with data that we actually can't use for that particular outcome or that particular uh, type of product. So I think a lot of this is in making sure that we go back to the basics of product development and say, well, what are we actually trying to build and what, what are we trying to accomplish first? And then aligning that with the AI systems that are going to be most effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 100%. I think that's the, the right direction that you've taken there. Um, something else I'd, I'd be curious to, to ask you about is, you know, I know you've done some advisory roles uh, with some big organizations, right? United Nations, World Health Organization. I'm wondering, like, in, in the context of those specifically, what are maybe some of the biggest misconceptions you've encountered around AI global health security? I would say uh, around AI, there's a general assumption that the tool itself is singular, that it is a thing that has one set of specific outcomes or impacts. I think that's one gap in between sort of the technologists and the policymakers at that scale. I think the other piece is is a problem from actually the technology perspective, which is assuming that if you have a tool that it will be useful for any of these different outcomes, which is obviously not necessarily the case. Again, this gets back to, well, what are you actually trying to do in the world? And is that the right tool? But I think a lot of the other is... Uh, not necessarily understanding where the hard step is. It turns out, especially when we're talking about things like biosecurity, but this this applies in a lot of places, the hard step isn't the piece that's happening in computing. It's not the in silico path. It's the integration with robotics. It's the integration with physical infrastructure and physical systems. And what we dealt, we dealt with a lot on the emergency management side was integration with utilities. These are the sorts of systems that are not even well datafied in a lot of ways. Those data aren't accessible, right? If you want to go in and figure out exactly who has electricity to which homes, when and where, those data aren't always necessarily readily available. If you don't even know where that is, then you can't just use a model to fix it. I think that's that's a lot of the challenge here is really understanding where and how those AI tools fit in this broader real world context where you have a lot of systems that are not necessarily computing driven and may or may not be already integrated uh, in a way that an AI model or an, an any sort of AI platform will be applicable. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and definitely, yeah, it's interesting looking at, at, at the way people view these things. I'm wondering, you know, you're moving into kind of this new phase um, at Luminosa Law. I'm wondering, how do you kind of envision AI transforming the legal pet practice and also like policy development? Um, maybe at Luminous Law or other places over like, let's say the next five years? Uh, great question. I think the the really exciting piece to me is that where we're going to, we're, I think we're going to see a lot of specialization. We're going to start seeing AI models that solve individual specific problems. And in each one of those cases, there are a lot of regulatory constraints that are being placed, but also a lot of regulatory constraints that simply already exist. 
we know that we have this really powerful tool that can go have really large impact. How are we going to build governance systems within our organizations that mean that we can very firmly assert that we know what our model is, we know where it came from, we know what data it's holding, and we feel confident in how it's going to have impact. How do we know it's going to get used? How do we feel comfortable with its use? And how do we make sure that we're not putting ourselves at legal liability by implementing or using them? And that's where a lot of good AI governance process is going to make a massive difference. And that's what I'm excited about at the firm is that we're uniquely positioned to integrate this conversation between what's happening on the legal side, which is typically in-house counsel who talks to a product lead. And it may or may not tr trickle down to the engineering team as specification and vice versa. The, lead, the engineering team may say, oh, well, but I could implement these engineering methods, but that may or may not be well understood by in-house counsel. And so we can go in and actually really effectively translate and help have that conversation around how you can build engineering tools that meet the requirements that are being placed by the legal domain, but also use that as a way not just to reduce risk, but to actually generate more value. I think there's a lot of skepticism that's coming in from the public now, where over the course of the next five years, that ability to say, no, I know what this model is. Let me show you. It has, it's been validated. It's been bias tested. We really know how it's acting and it is reliable and predictable. I think that's going to end up being really important. That's about good governance practice that percolates not just from your legal shop in-house, but all the way through your engineering process and really gets baked in as a value proposition. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so exciting to uh, to see how that field is going to evolve and some of the changes that we're seeing there. I do think you guys are uniquely positioned, so I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, I'm wondering if from your perspective, what are some of the most pressing, perhaps ethical considerations in AI development for public policy and governance that we should be uh, thinking about? I think some of the biggest challenges are in the actual implementation. When we look at even the NIST, uh, the NIST framework for AI and addressing risk, there's a, there's a big gap between what the guidance is uh, and how you actually implement that in engineering practice. So I think there's going to, there's a, there's a big space and a lot of room to move in terms of translating but, uh, what those specifications are and how to actually build the system that meets those requirements. But I think the other big, one of the, one of the really big issues in responsible AI is going to be defining what bias means, what good enough means, what, what actually is our goal or our end goal. It's very easy to say, well, you need an unbiased system. But defining whether that means that it needs to be as biased as the world already is, does it need to be better than that? How do we define better? Who gets to define what better means? What, because what bias looks like to you or to me may be different for someone else. And defining what those thresholds are and actually turning that into something that you can measure and assess progress toward is not necessarily an engineering decision. And it's and and these are in in essence values and judgment calls that need to be implemented in policy. And that's going to mean getting really precise about what we want the world to look like and therefore what we're comfortable with these systems doing. That is yeah, I think that's so important. It's so fascinating looking at 
Um, like you mentioned, these are values and judgment calls. And yeah, it's, you're right. It's not necessarily an engineering decision, but it's a decision that I think the world is collectively uh, discussing and trying to uh, trying to find what they what they think would be best. Um, what I would love to um, ask you about is, you know, it's been phenomenal having you on here. If people are interested in getting in contact with you um, or finding out what you're working on next, what's the best way for people to to do that? The easiest way to get me is uh, through the law firm. So it's luminos.law. Uh, and I'm certainly on LinkedIn and uh, I'm also available through the Georgetown website. I'm at the Massive Data Institute and the Center for Global Health Science and Security. So I'm pretty easy to find online. Uh, and Luminos is certainly the place to come for all of the AI work. Wonderful. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to any of the listeners to the law firm if they're interested in um, finding out more about what you're working on or getting in contact with you. Um, to the listener, thank you so much for tuning in to the AI Chat Podcast. And make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcast. And I hope that you have an amazing rest of your day.